Father, we bless your name today and we thank you that no matter what we're going through, even when we're going through it in church and the sound system goes bad, our help comes from the Lord. Father, from the simplest things in life to the most complicated crises that we experience, our help comes from you. And I pray, Father, that this morning you would be glorified in everything that is said and done. Lord, I pray that we would be challenged by the word that is spoken, but not in any way condemned. Lord, I pray that you would come alongside us and you would give us that unique blend of convicting us, but yet at the same time comforting in our hearts that you have not abandoned us, that you are showing us a better way. May we embrace it for your glory and for your honor alone. We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. Amen. Give the Lord praise in his house one more time here this morning. Amen. Hey, before you're seated and we start the video, turn to your neighbor and tell him you'll love him in Jesus' name. Well, right now we are in the middle of a series that we have called Warning Signs. And in this series, we have been looking at understanding the signs of spiritual peril, the signs that we are falling away from the Lord. And in the very first week that we started this series, I had shared with you that when it comes to this whole subject of falling away from the Lord, there is a lot of discussion in the church. There's a lot of controversy maybe a lot of disagreement as well as to whether or not a Christian can actually fall away from the Lord. There are a lot of different discussions when it comes to the security of the believer. And very quickly, I want to remind you that basically there are two schools of thought. First of all, there are those who believe that once you have genuinely received Christ as your Lord and Savior and you have embraced him and accepted him, that there is nothing that you can do, there is nothing that anyone else could do that could ever take you from that relationship. Nothing could ever alter that relationship with the Lord. They would say you are eternally secure, that you are not saved by your works, you're saved by the grace of God, and so therefore nothing you ever did in the future could ever impact your present relationship with the Lord. You are eternally secure. You could never lose your salvation. Now, what they would say is that that there are people that appear to fall away from the Lord, but in actuality, they never knew him to begin with. They were never saved in the first place, and that it only took a little time for that to truly manifest. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there are those who, like us, this is what we believe at this church, that... Although you can have a genuine, real, authentic relationship with God and embrace Him as Lord and Savior, at the same time, you are not being held there against your will. That at any point in your walk with the Lord, you could begin to entertain sin and because of the deceitfulness of sin, develop a heart of unbelief and actually fall away from the Lord. 
Now, it may not happen overnight. It may not happen over a period of weeks or months. But certainly, there is a time when you could walk right out of your relationship with God. And what they would say is that, yes, we are saved by the grace of God, but it is through faith in Christ. And that faith is not just a one and done faith that I come and I have faith in Jesus Christ once and now I'm saved, but I must continue in my faith that every day I must endure to the end that I must continually put my faith in the Lord and grow and become more like him day by day. And if I am not doing that, then I am falling away from the Lord. And if I continue in that, I can find myself completely fallen from the Lord. Now, what I said to you in that very first week is that in all of these years of studying both positions, I've come to a place where, you know, I say, I don't think it really has to be an either or proposition. I don't believe it has to be one or the other. I believe that both of those positions are scriptural. That you can look in the Bible and you can find scriptural support for both positions. And although I do firmly believe that someone can put their faith in Jesus Christ and serve him for months and even years and eventually fall away because they're not continuing in their faith, I also believe that with the easy beliefism that has crept into the church today, where today all I need to do to be a Christian is say a prayer, but I don't know anything about repentance, because I really have never been taught anything about the lordship of Jesus Christ, I can come into the faith under, if you will, uh, just these wrong perceptions and these false pretenses and never really have an experience with the Lord. And so my drifting in and out and falling away is not an evidence that I am falling away from the Lord. It's actually evidence that I've never really known him to begin with. And Jesus even talked about that in that very famous ending of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, many are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And Jesus will look at them and say, I never knew you. We never had a relationship. So I believe there's scriptural evidence for both. But here is what I said to you. No matter where you land on this particular issue, the one thing that we do need to recognize is that long before you ever show up there, there are warning signs that you are in a perilous place. That long before you ever fall away from the Lord, whether you knew him and you fell away or whether you never knew him and it just became obvious over time, the reality is you never get to that place without a warning sign. God loves you and me too much to allow us to continue on a path that is leading to destruction without warning us that we are in a very perilous place. God loves you enough that he would warn you if you're in that perilous place. And what we have said throughout this series is that just as there are physical signs that warn us and inform us and regulate us and direct us and guide us and stop us and make us yield and even can help us identify identify where we are, there are spiritual signs that do the exact same thing. 
There are spiritual signs that will arise in our walk with the Lord and our journey with Jesus Christ that are there to warn us, to inform us, to regulate us, to guide us, to direct us, to stop us, to make us yield, to even help us locate where we are in Christ. But as it is with all of these physical signs, sometimes we don't want to hear the information that these spiritual signs are providing for us. Because we have already rebelliously in our heart determined this is how we're going to live. This is how we're going to serve the Lord. This is how we're going to choose to go in life. And so we've already made those decisions. And the last thing that we need is some information from a warning sign from God that we need to change the direction that we're going in. And so it is with many of these signs, we just ignore these warning signs and we press on and live our life the way that we want to, ignoring the warnings that we get. But what I said to you in that very first week is that every time we ignore the warning signs, we put ourselves in spiritual peril. And the longer that you stay on that path, the harder it becomes to get out of it And if you stay long enough, you'll reach a point of no return. Folks, we need to pay attention to the warning signs that God sends us and heed that information. The reason that this is so important is because the Bible makes it very clear that the closer we get to the coming of the Lord, the more that we are going to see a great falling away from the faith. The Bible speaks of a mass defection from the faith in the last days before the coming of the Lord. And the reason that this is so important is not only because that mass defection is coming, but that it can happen to any one of us sitting here today. There is not one of us that is immune to falling away from the Lord. And so let him who thinks he stands today take heed lest he fall. Don't ever deceive yourself into believing that you have such a tight relationship with the Lord that it would be impossible for you to walk away from him because I assure you there have been stronger men and women in the faith than you that have walked away from Jesus Christ. Please, folks, guard your heart above all things because it only takes one day to begin to walk away from the living God Almighty, you're going to see that today. Now, believe it or not, what we have said is that there is one letter in the New Testament that actually deals almost exclusively with this issue. You know it is the book of Hebrews, but it's actually not a book, it's a letter. It was a letter that was actually written by an unknown author to a small house church that was either located in or around Rome in 70 AD. The church comprised primarily of Jewish men and women who had embraced Christ as their Messiah, their Savior, and their Lord. But it was a very dangerous time to serve the Lord because there was widespread and rampant persecution, real persecution. I mean, their possessions were being confiscated. Their children were being taken from them. Children removed from their parents. It was a a horrible time. They were being publicly humiliated. They were being imprisoned. In some cases, they were even being martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ, though that was going to ramp up in the near future. It was a very dangerous time, and for that reason, there were many of these Christians that were actually considering abandoning the faith in Christ altogether, returning to Judaism. Whereas others were just thinking, you know what we're going to do, we're going we're gonna to try to mix the two together. And they did that to try and alleviate the pain. And I get it, they probably rationalized it and they justified it in their own mind. But the author of Hebrews says, there is no justification. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. He is the fulfillment of all the shadows and the types that are in the Old Testament. He is salvation. And if you abandon him, you abandon all hope and you put your life in peril. And then woven into this incredible letter are five warnings, five signs that we are falling away from the Lord, that we are in a path that is leading us away from God, not toward him. And what we're doing in this series is we are looking at all five of these warnings because we want to be able to detect the presence of these warnings in our own life so that when they arise, that we will not fight against the sign, but we will admit this is where I am and we would turn back to the Lord before it is too late in Jesus' name. Well, The last time that we were together, we looked at the first of those warnings. And of course, that was the warning sign of drifting. Today, we're going to turn our attention to the second of these signs. You know, when you pull up to a sign, I don't know if you've ever thought about it in these terms, but when you pull up to a sign or you are walking up to a sign, wherever that sign is, the sign is actually requiring something from you. And again, I don't know if you've ever thought of it in these terms. Everything is so uh, automatic with us today. But the moment that I see a sign, even as I look at the time, it is, it is demanding something from me. Every time you pull up to a sign, it is requiring trust. It is requiring uh, confidence. It is requiring faith. I don't know, again, if you've ever thought of it, but it is demanding from you your confidence, your trust, your faith. When I see a sign, many times it is alerting me to something I cannot see. It is alerting me to something that I'm not aware of or could not, at least from my vantage point, be aware of. And it's asking me to put my confidence in the sign and in the information it is providing for me and to heed it and to do what it is requiring of me. The reality is I may not want to detour. I may not want to slow down for construction because I don't see any evidence of it. I don't know if any of you are like me, but there is nothing more frustrating than, again, coming up to a construction sign that says, slow down, construction for the next five miles, and then there's intimidating sign that says, fines are doubled in the construction zone. And you slow right down because you don't want a $1,000 bill. And as you're driving through, there's no trucks on the road. And there's no construction workers. Anybody with me on that? You know, they're just looking at how many suckers are on the road today. I, I, that's how I feel with it. So I don't always see the evidence and I want to argue with the sign. Because from my point of view, I can't see any evidence of any danger ahead. I may not want to stop. I may not want to yield. So I have to make a choice. Am I going to lean on my own understanding Am I going to go with my perception, what I perceive to be right, or am I going to put my confidence in the sign and submit to its truth? Well, believe it or not, the same is required with all of these spiritual signs. Because these spiritual signs are alerting us to something we may not see, we may not be aware of, and they demand our absolute trust, our confidence, and our faith. And 
at times, again, we don't want to hear that information. So what I have got to do is I have either got to believe and do as the information these signs provide me to do, or I'm going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to trust in my own instincts. I'm going to trust in my perception and what I think about the issue, harden my heart, which is my will, and press on. Come to think of it, laying these warning signs aside for a moment, isn't really that what the entire word of God demands of you? I mean, every time I read the word of God, it is instructing me on how I am to live. It is instructing me on how I am to conduct myself. It is instructing me on how I am to respond when I am attacked. How I am to conduct myself financially, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. This is the word of God. And I can tell you right now that after being a Christian for so many years, there are times I open up the Bible and I don't necessarily want to hear what it has to say. And at that point, I've got to make a decision. Do I lean upon the word of God and submit myself to it? Or do I lean on my own understanding, my own instincts, my own uh, perception of things and press on to my own demise? The whole word of God requires that I believe it. And that leads us to the second warning. And that second warning comes to us in Hebrews chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you bring your Bibles. We, we put the stuff up on the screen, but that's for people that are newer to the faith and maybe not have one. But if you have your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. And we're going to begin at verse number 7. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning with verse number 7. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today... If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me. Some translations use the word provoke me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation. I would be too if I worked with them for 40 years and they still didn't turn. And he said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest or the promised land. Beware, say this word with me, brethren. Brethren. Beware, brethren. I point that out because he is writing to brothers and sisters of faith. He is not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to Christians. Beware, brethren. Lest there be in any of you, brethren, an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The second warning sign that you are in a perilous place is unbelief. Another sign that you may be falling away from the Lord is unbelief. The other day as I sat down and I started to just collect my thoughts and put them down and just really begin to prepare for this morning, the thought occurred to me that, that I'm facing the same, the same struggle that I did the last time that we were together in that Unbelief is much easier to define than it is to describe. 
It's very easy for me to define for you what unbelief is. It's a little harder and more challenging to describe what unbelief looks like. Again, it's one of those things that when you first start out, you think, oh yeah, I, I got unbelief down packed. But it's one of those things that is very, very easily misunderstood. It's very easy for me to define for you unbelief. You don't even need for me to define unbelief for you. You, you get it. Unbelief is simply not believing. Unbelief is faithlessness and unfaithfulness. That's not hard to figure out. But can I tell you, it's much harder to describe it. It's much harder to detect the presence of unbelief in our lives. It's much harder to flesh it out. Because let's be honest, let's be completely honest here today. Most of us here today would say that we are all believers. We are believers. We would say we believe that God exists. We believe that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We believe that he had a son. His name is Jesus Christ. We believe that he died on a cross, that he rose again, that he's coming again, and that there is no other name given by which man may be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. We would go on to say we believe the Bible. We believe that it is the inspired word of Almighty God, and it is the only rule for conduct and life and faith. We We believe all the things that are necessary in our mind to be children of God. But what I would ask you is, what is the evidence of belief? Okay, you've told me what you believe, but what is the evidence of belief? Is belief just simply a confession that you make, or is it more than that? What is the evidence of belief? Well, I don't know if you've ever considered it before, but the evidence of belief is obedience, It's obedience. Obedience is the evidence that I believe something. Because we all act in accordance to what we truly believe. So that means that disobedience is unbelief. Whoa. That's a game changer. Because now all of a sudden I am gripped with the grim reality that belief is not just a confession... It is a lifestyle. That, that belief really shows up in my day-to-day life. It shows up in my obedience. And if I do not obey what I say I believe, the reality is I have unbelief. I can stop at a sign or pull up to a sign and believe that it says stop. And say, I believe that we should stop. But if I plow right through that stop sign, do I believe? No. Because if I truly believed, I would have obeyed and stopped. The fact that I went through the stop sign proves I don't believe that its command is true. Some of you like where I'm going. So I can say I believe the word of God. I can say that I believe the Holy Spirit inspired it. I can say that I believe every word proceeded from the mouth of God. But if I do not adhere to it, if I just proceed on with my life, then I truly do not believe and I have an unbelieving heart. I can sit here every Sunday and say, oh, I believe that Jesus is the only way. I believe that the word of God is true. But if I don't submit to it, then I have unbelief. 
My disobedience shows that I do not believe God. I actually believe my own estimation. Interesting to note here that he says it's an evil heart of unbelief, an evil heart of unbelief. And I I, I believe that he chose those words to help us to recognize that unbelief is a serious matter before the Lord. I think that sometimes we think that doubt and unbelief really are not that major. But can I tell you that it is the most grievous of all sins when we have unbelief in our heart. That's why he calls it an evil heart of unbelief. But that raises a question. What really constitutes unbelief? What really constitutes doubt in the life of a believer? Because let's be honest, there's a lot of confusion about unbelief and doubt, and that has caused a lot of condemnation. Certainly, we are to be men and women of faith, but there are extremes to everything, and there is an extreme when it comes to the matters of faith, with individuals saying, if you have enough faith, then you will see a miracle. If you have enough faith, then you will have a healing. And if you don't see the healing, and if you don't have the miracle, then it's because you didn't have enough faith. To which I've always said is, well, how much faith do I actually need? I mean, how much faith do I actually need? Jesus said, if I have the faith of a mustard seed, then I'll be able to move mountains. So I really don't know how much faith I need. So I I, I don't know how to navigate through that. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Or at least it needs a little bit more understanding, some more scriptural support. How are we to handle this this unbelief and this doubt? There's two interesting stories that I think a lot of times we ignore. One of them comes to us in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus comes into the city that he was raised in, Nazareth, and as he comes in, he's coming in to reveal to the people who had watched him grow up and the people who had grown up with him that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And he comes in and he begins to show forth his, his true self to all these people he was raised with, to all these people who watched him grow up, and they were struggling with it. They were having a hard time. I mean, you would too. You had seen him grow up. You would have a hard time. Wow, this is the Messiah. They struggled. And someone said in Mark chapter 6, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Listen to this part. This is the telling. So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. So here we clearly see in Scripture that Jesus did not heal among them because of their unbelief. No doubt about that. What's interesting is that three chapters later, in Mark chapter 9, you read of a desperate father who brought his son to the disciples. The boy was demon-possessed, and the condition that he found himself in was dire. From early childhood, this boy was tormented by a demonic spirit, and there were even times when under the influence of this demonic power, he was thrown into the water and into the fire. And so the father comes to Jesus desperate for a miracle. And listen to what Jesus said to him. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. 
immediately, listen to this, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, listen, help my unbelief. Do you know that Jesus would go on and heal that boy even after the father openly confessed, I believe, help my unbelief. So in one story, you see Jesus not healing because of unbelief. And then in the other story, you see Jesus healing in spite of unbelief. What is the difference? In his hometown, they were offended at him. They did not trust in him. They did not believe in him. The father, on the other hand, had confidence in Christ, even asking him for his help with his unbelief. He said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, I still have confidence in you. My unbelief is not directed towards you, Christ. It is just the mess I find myself in. His unbelief wasn't a result of lacking confidence in who Jesus was as much as it was dealing with the years of torment that his son had endured. The hometown people were offended at the character and the nature of Jesus Christ himself and couldn't see him as anything other than a carpenter's son and the son of Mary. The father was broken down after years of watching his son violently tormented by the demon. And though he trusted in Christ, the storm and the drama surrounding his child caused him to doubt. And therein I see the mercy and the grace and the compassion of Jesus Christ. That he recognized in his hometown that these men and women did not believe in him. But when it came to the father, he did believe in him, but he was struggling with all the mess that he had seen in his own son's life. And Jesus overlooked that unbelief and was able to heal for the glory and the honor of God. Can I stand here today and tell you that it's one thing to trust in Jesus yet struggle with doubt because you've been rocked by circumstances and not trusting in Christ and in his character. That is an evil heart of unbelief. I am so thankful that even in my storms and struggles that make me waver, I can have complete confidence in Jesus and he's not going to look at me and say, no, 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 you can't have any wavering. No, he says, if you trust me, I don't care about anything else. I'll move in your midst in Jesus' mighty name. Can somebody give God the praise for that? Amen? So hear that. What made this the evil heart of unbelief is that they resisted Christ. That's the evil heart. It's because you're accusing Christ of not being good of not being loving, of not being merciful, of not being reliable, of not being trustworthy. You're accusing him. You're attacking his character and nature. That is the evil heart of unbelief. In fact, that word evil, it's interesting. It's not just speaking of how bad something is. The word evil is actually translated diseased or blind. He's speaking of a evil, diseased, blinded heart. And most of you know that heart is speaking of the will. When the Bible speaks of the heart, it's not primarily dealing with this organ in your body that's beating and sending blood throughout the rest of your body. He is talking about the will of man, that the heart is the will. And so what he's talking about here is an evil, diseased, and blinded will. 
It is carrying the idea of a will that has been so deliberately, willfully, intentionally, and stubbornly refusing to believe in Almighty God and His Word that the heart or the will becomes diseased and blind to its true condition. What he was saying here to these Christians is that any one of you, because of the deceitfulness of sin can have such a diseased and, and, and blinded will that you don't even realize your true condition. Remember who he was writing to. Some of the Christians that he is writing to are thinking about returning to Judaism and abandoning Christ. And in order to do that, they would have to intentionally, deliberately, and willfully refuse to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They would have to say, Jesus, you are a liar. You are not who you said and claimed to be. And in doing that, they would be dangerously close to becoming so diseased and blinded within their will that they would even not know that they were departing from the Lord altogether. I got to tell you, as a pastor, I wonder if there are even people here this morning in our own church family who find themselves dealing with the same thing. Maybe you have been so rocked by circumstances in your life. Some things have happened that have made you question the word or question God's character. And you find yourself, even today, when praise and worship was going on, intentionally, deliberately, and willfully you know, refusing to trust him, to praise him. And you think that you're punishing God when in reality, all that you're doing is blinding your will and building disease into your will and you've already begun the journey away from God. You know what's interesting here is I was studying these things is, is that the author doesn't really leave us guessing as to what it looks like, but he actually provides for us an illustration in verses 7 through 11. And I want to just point this out. Verses 7 through 11 are actually quoting Psalm 95. And so for those of you that like to take this study a little further, you can go home this afternoon or this evening and you can read Psalm 95 because it is a direct quote from it. But let me read to you verses 7 through 11 again. He says, therefore, the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, again you could say provoked me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and I said they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. And again that was speaking of the promised land. Now this is speaking... Maybe he could be alluding to two particular events, but really he's speaking generally of the entire 40-year wilderness experience. The fact that over 40 years from the time that they came out of Egypt till the time that the children of Israel went into the promised land, they had watched God work miracles in an unprecedented fashion. You know, we all kind of romanticize miracles and say, if we saw more miracles then more people would get saved. Really? 
because isn't it amazing that after three and a half years of miracle working ministry that Jesus did, so many miracles that John said, if all the miracles that Jesus did were written in books, the world itself would not contain the books that would be written, that after all of that, still only 120 were still following him passionately after his resurrection. And you do realize that the overwhelming majority of people over the last 2,000 years that have come to faith in Jesus Christ never saw a miracle. I mean, how many of us here truly came to Christ as a result of seeing a miracle? No. We came to Christ because we had faith that Jesus died and he rose again in Jesus' name. Can you say amen to that? Now that is not, please... That is not to say that we should not believe for miracles, because we should, but, but it doesn't always work the way that we think they will. For 40 years, they watched God, God working miracles. I mean, even when they were in Egypt, what did they watch? They, they watched God preserve them in Egypt in spite of the plagues that were upon Egypt. Then they came out and and God opened up the Red Sea and caused them to walk across on dry ground and then bring those same waters down upon the Egyptian army. They watched God lead them as a cloud by day and a fire by night. They watched God bring water from a rock, bread from heaven. He even brought quail down from the the sky to feed their desire for meat. And then for 40 years, their clothes and their shoes did not wear out. For 40 years, they saw miracles. But rather than being humbled by the miracles and accept God as being trustworthy and reliable, They tested him. They tried him. They provoked him and continually went astray in their hearts. The key of understanding this, I believe, because most of us would say, we never test Jesus. We don't try him. But it's understanding what that is all about. What they did for 40 years is complain about the situations they found themselves in and use it as an opportunity to accuse God of failing them. From time to time, maybe this will help you. From time to time, you'll hear about this um, with, with various relationships that we have, whether it's a marital relationship, a parental relationship, or it's just a friendship, whatever relationship it is. But every once in a while, you'll hear of an individual, and don't point at anybody when I'm talking about this, okay? <laughs> don't give anybody a dirty look, okay? But every once in a while, you'll find someone in the relationship that is controlling, that is manipulative, someone that is maybe insecure, and what they do smile if you know what I'm talking about, is in their own mind, they will make a test for the other people in the relationship. They'll set them up in their own mind for a test to see if they will pass the test. And it's inevitable that they're not going to pass the test because the only one that knows that the other person is being tested is the one that's making up the test. I hope I didn't lose anybody there, okay? And when they fail, what do they do? They come alongside, see, if you loved me, you would have done this. If you loved me, you wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have gone there. And and you're just like, what are you talking about? I didn't even know I was being tested. It's aggravating. And you realize this has nothing to do with love at all. This is manipulation. you're, You're trying to control me. You don't really care about me. You only care about what you can get out of it. You have no real genuine care and love for me. 
This is what they did with God for 40 years. They manipulated. They tried to control the Lord. They would use the circumstances to say, God, if you cared. In Exodus 14, they accused God of leading them out of Egypt to die in the wilderness. In Exodus 16, they accused God of trying to kill them with hunger. In Exodus 17, they accused God of trying to kill them with thirst. In Numbers 11, they complained about the food that God gave them. In Numbers 12, they complained about the leadership that God provided through Moses. And I'm not even going to go on to talk about the five more times that they would call God's character into question. Each time, they were trying to manipulate God into giving them what they wanted because they thought I know what's best for me I don't believe that you have my best interests in mind this is unbelief and I wonder how many of us have done that God if you loved me why did you let him die God if you love me you'll make him love me God, if you love me, then you'll heal this loved one over here. God, if you don't save my son, then I know you can't be trusted. That isn't love. You're trying to manipulate God. You're trying to make God do what you want him to do because you believe you know what is best for your own life and do not trust God with your life. But you know, there's another way of testing and tempting God. Buckle up. How about when we know what Scripture says and what will happen if we disobey, but we just harden our hearts and do it anyway? Is that any less testing God? Am I not still tempting God? Am I not, when I know what God says and I know what God says will happen, If I do this, and I do it anyway, am I just not saying, I think you're lying? I remember the worst spanking that my son ever got. And I wasn't even there to see what he did. I just had to take care of the dirty work. You know what I'm saying? But he was out with his sister and and, uh, and Kathy one time. This is when they were little. And he was at that age where he was testing you know, he wanted to see where his limits were. And he was bugging his sister. And Kathy kept saying, leave her alone, leave her alone, leave her alone. Finally, she picked him up, threw him in the cart and said, don't move a muscle or I'm going to get dad after you. And he was sitting like this. And he went. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just that, that testing. Aren't we doing the same thing when God says, this is how I want you to live, and we do it the opposite? Aren't we just saying? You know, we think evil heart of unbelief, that's atheists. Atheists, they've got the evil heart of unbelief. But don't we practice Christian atheism? You know what Christian atheism is? We believe that God exists, but we live as if he doesn't. If I were to ask all of you, do you believe that you're going to stand before God and give an account of your life? You would say, oh, absolutely. But you don't live like that. I mean, come on. Let's just be honest. Most of us, 
could give a rip about standing before God the way we live. You tell me what the difference is between the atheist who defiantly shakes his fist towards heaven and challenges God to kill him if he exists and the professing Christian that reads in Matthew 6, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses, but they walk with unforgiveness in their heart. I would tell you that the professing Christian is actually more defiant than the atheist. Because at least the atheist is being consistent. I don't believe in God. The professing Christian says, I believe God, but I believe I can get away with this. What's the difference between the atheist and the professing Christian that reads in Malachi 2 and verse 16, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously and then goes to a divorce court and treacherously for convenience sakes goes and gets a divorce. It's quiet. What's the difference between an atheist and a professing Christian that opens up the Bible and reads, be holy as I am holy and then goes out and lives any way that they want to. What's the difference between the atheist and the professing Christian that reads what Paul said in Corinthians, to flee from youthful lusts, to abstain from fornication, and yet goes out and sleeps with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, or even worse, lives with them? Is that not tempting God? Basically, what you are saying is, God, I don't care what you said, because I don't believe You are this way, and I'm going to do what I want to do. It's a sobering thought, but this is unbelief, and it's the, that's why I told you, it's it's easier to define it than it is to describe it, because most of you at the beginning of the message would say, I've got all the faith in God I need. Really? What causes this? What causes this condition? He tells us right there in verse 13. I love how he packages this. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It is the deceitfulness of sin that causes an evil heart of unbelief. Because sin is so deceitful, it is hard to detect that your heart is actually getting harder. And you might ask, well, why is sin so deceitful? There are two reasons, basically, and I've got to hurry through it very quickly because we still have a lot of material that we need to go through. First of all, sin is deceitful because it's so pleasurable. Let's be honest. Sin is pleasurable. It feels good. And, And we all got to admit that. If sin didn't feel good, nobody would do it. The reason that people sin and struggle with it is because, at least initially, it's pleasurable. It feels good. Parents, the worst thing you can ever tell your kids is sin does not feel good. Because one day they're going to do it, and it's going to feel great, and they're going to say, I wonder what else mom and dad have been lying about. You need to sit with your kids and say, there is a lot of pleasure in sin, but it is short-lived. The problem is, we think, man, it feels so good. It feels so right. It can't be wrong. 
And that was the same thing that that Moses had to struggle with when he finally came to an age where he said, am I going to be an Israelite or am I going to stay in Pharaoh's house? And in Hebrews chapter 11, he chose rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. The reason it's so deceptive is it feels good. And so we just keep doing it because we think, how could anything that feels so good be so wrong? The second reason that sin is so deceptive is because its judgment is always delayed. Its judgment is always delayed. You don't, you don't typically get caught the first time you do it. You don't typically be you know, found out the first time you do it. Judgment is not always immediate. And because it's not, we deceive ourselves into thinking, I'm getting away with it. God didn't see this one. He must have been turning around at that time. God doesn't care about it. It's not a big deal with him. And we forget what Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived in this. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that is what he will also reap. And I told you in that very first week, when you plant seed, you don't get a harvest the same day. The same week, the same month. It's months before the harvest comes in. And the problem is, is that we do a little sin and nothing happens. The sky doesn't fall in and we think it's no big deal. So what do we do? We keep doing it over and over again, planting more seed and more seed. And what you cannot see is that in years to come, you're going to reap a harvest of judgment that you could have never imagined. And there are men and women in this room that will tell you, listen to him. Because when I was in my teens, when I was in my early 20s, I lived for myself and I thought I was getting away with it and there would never be any hell to pay. Everything is going to be great and you kept living. But now in my 30s, in my 40s, in my 50s, in my 60s, I'm still harvesting all the pain that I sowed 30, 40 years ago. Folks, hear me. God is not mocked in this. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. Can I tell you one more thing? Because this is another deception that I feel I need to bring out. Because it's about conviction. And the deception is if I feel conviction... But all I ever do is get convicted and I never obey, I'm hardening my heart. I'm hardened because I believe that my conviction means something, that it counts for something, when actually it is obedience that God requires of me. There are many of you that are going to leave here saying, I feel convicted. Oh God, I got to change some things. But you never will. And you deceive yourself into believing as long as you're convicted that God's cool with that. God actually sees that even more destructive because now he's touched you and said, you've got to change. But now you're saying, I'm not going to. Oh, I'll tell you that I'm going to change. But I'm never going to do it. This is unbelief. See, when I first started, a lot of you said, I don't have any unbelief. But as we've unpackaged it, all of a sudden, some of you are beginning to realize, oh, man, I'm drifting. Is there a cure? Absolutely. It's in verses 3 and, or excuse me, verse 7 and verse 13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear my voice. And then verse 
13 says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There are only two cures for a hardened heart. Number one, you have got to develop intimacy with the Holy Spirit. You have got to become more sensitive to the Holy Spirit than you've ever been before. And the only way to develop intimacy with the Holy Spirit is that when he speaks, do it. He says, today, if you will hear his voice, today, right now, don't put it off. If you feel the Holy Spirit piercing your heart on an issue, deal with it today. That's how you become more sensitive. The Holy Spirit, the second, is very much like it. You must develop godly relationships. He said, exhort one another daily. You need somebody driving this journey with you because you have blind spots all over your life. And you won't see it happening. And I'm not talking about inviting people over for a pool party and talking about politics and your favorite sports team or, you know, that Dallas is going to win today. You know, you don't need all of that. Don't hold that against me, okay? You don't need, I mean, yes, we want to be friendly with everyone, but you better make sure that you have three or four godly men and women in your life that are further down their path with Christ than you are and that are holding your feet to the fire, that are challenging you to grow in the faith and that will get up in your grill when you start walking away from God. Eternity is banking on this. You need someone. Let me ask you, do you have them? And will you listen to them? Because a lot of us have them, but we won't listen. You got to have them and you got to listen. Exhort one another daily while it's called today. Say, is this important, pastor? How important is this? Listen to this and then we're done. Verse 13 but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened to the deceitfulness of sin. And then verse 19 of this chapter, so we see that they, Israel, could not enter into the promised land because of unbelief. You better believe this is important. And the reason it's important is because it only takes one day to start walking away from God. I'm not saying that you will walk away from God in one day, but it only takes one day to start down the path. And at first, you can still see God over here. And you keep thinking, as long as I can see God. But eventually that path will take you out of his presence. It only takes one day to start walking away. That's why you've got to heed the word of the Lord. Because folks, the longer you stay on that path, you'll walk right out of all the promises that God has for you. When it comes to heaven, hell issues, I'll leave that with God. But I can guarantee you this. You can walk so far away from God that every great thing he had planned for you, you'll miss out on it. Not because he held it back from you, because you walked away. Please, do not allow your heart to be deceived by sin. But today, hear the voice of the Lord and come out from unbelief in Jesus' name. Every head bowed. Every eye closed.
As I've done with every one of these messages, I'm going to do it again today. Just turn your seat into an altar. And just for a few moments, I want you to consider in particular the areas of this message that really spoke to you. There were some things that were said, maybe not the whole message, but there were one or two, maybe even three things that really pierced your heart. And what I'd like you to do right there is just take them before the Lord and say, Father, help me not to forget these things I've heard today. challenged myself throughout this series to